Hello again, folks. It's Marty Ross, your Aaron Storyteller. Now, we're going to do things a wee bit differently this time. Um, I'm recording this just a, a few days after the uh, the invasion of Ukraine um, by Russian forces. Now, for someone who, as I've said in my previous recording, how someone who loves Russian culture, Russian art, Russian literature, Russian music, uh, this is all the more heartbreaking because, uh, again, once again, not for the first time in history one is looking at a, a culture that one loves very much being uh, hijacked by an egomaniacal psychopath um, and dragging the name of the culture through the dirt. Um, so uh, a very sad time. So um, to sort of show my solidarity with the good folk of Ukraine, I'm going to um, this time round tell you a story um, by a great Ukrainian writer, uh, Nikolai Gogol. And I'm going to tell you a story by him which is very much rooted in Ukrainian folktale, folklore. Um, the story V. Um, so um, for, for, for one thing, um, rather than sort of uh, uh, coming up with my own story and my own words as I, as I usually do, I'm going to essentially tell, recite as it were, Gogol's story. However, um, uh, I, I, what I've done here is I've sort of in effect translated Gogol's text into a, a Scottish idiom that fits more comfortably in my storytelling mouth, as it were. It's a very uh, dramatic tale, and um, quite a lengthy tale, so I'm going to split it into three episodes. And so, essentially, I, as I say, I can't really take credit for the story. This is Nikolai Gogol's story, and of course he was drawing on traditions of uh, his own native Ukrainian folklore. Um, but yes, uh, to do my own sort of a figurative waving of the Ukrainian flag, here is Gogol's story, V, a part one of it at any rate. As soon as the seminary bell finished ringing its echoes off the golden domes of Kiev, the sleepy-eyed students came to Rapesing, hurrying, rushing in from all parts of town. Books of grammar, rhetoric, philosophy and theology stuffed under the rocksters. The so-called grammarians were still just boys, shoving a path past one another, squabbling in shrill voices. Nearly all of them wore tattered or, frankly, manky clothes, pockets overflowing with catapults, pipes made of pens, sticky, half-sucked remnants of their last trip to the sweetie shop, and sometimes even young sparrows kept for pets. The latter would sometimes begin to chirp, amid the solemn silence of the school and bring down on their possessors severe smackings with the strap. 
the rhetoricians walked in a more orderly way. Their clothes were, well, more or less untorn. But on the other hand, their faces were often strangely decorated. Well, this one had a real shiner of a black eye. And the lips of another, why they were, they, they were puffed up like a single great red pluck. These fellas, well, they warbled to one another in tenor voices. The philosophers chattered away an octave lower. In their pockets they had only scraps of tobacco, never whole wads of it. For what they could get a hold of, they smoked straight away. And they reeked, frankly, so strongly of the old backy and brandy that a passing workman would often stop, stock still, <laughs> sniffing the aroma like a hound. About this time of day, the marketplace was all bustle, and the market women selling rolls, cakes and honey tarts plucked the sleeves of, it was certainly the boys in the better clothes. Oh, here, Waddy, here, they cried. Well-fired rolls, cream horns, strawberry tarts, bake them all myself. Another drew something long and crooked out of her basket and cried, Here's a sausage, young sir, big, sweet and greasy Savoy. No buy nothing for her, cried a rival. See how downright quatty she is. What a manky nose and horn she has for haunting your sausage. But the market woman let the philosophers and theologians saunter by unsolicited. For these uh, tight-fisted high heeds only ever snatched and tasted a few samples, without frankly digging deep enough to, 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 to pay for anything. Reaching the seminary, the students split this way and that, clattering their way into to long, low classrooms with small windows, rattling doors and blackened, creaky benches. The teachers took their place, preached and thumped out the lessons, then heard the pupils repeat them in voices everywhere from shrill squeaks to deepest boomings, all the time keeping a sharp eye to see whether whether wee dodes of cake or other dainties weren't hanging halfway out their pupils' pockets. If so, bang! They were snatched for subsequent chomping in the staff room. When these savants of the future stumbled in a wee bit early, or when word got round the teachers were going to show up a wee bit late, why, a full-scale strum mash would start up, uh, for want of anything better to do. In this battle, everyone had to take part. Even the prefect supposed to be keeping everyone in line. Two divinity students generally drew the lines of battle. Whether each class should uh, split into two sides, or whether the whole student population in total should divide themselves into two much bigger halves. Ah, it was either grammarians kicked off the fight, and after the rhetoricians had joined in, the wordsmiths retired to the benches, the better to cheer on everyone else getting a bloody nose. In went the philosophers, with their long black moustaches, and finally, well, better late than ever, the thin-necked divinity students. The general Rami generally ended in a victory for the men of God. The philosophers trailing off to the benches to gently settle their kicked arses and nurse their bloody noses. When the teacher, invariably a veteran himself of such boyish punch-ups, 
came clattering in. He saw by the red raw coupons of his pupils that the battle had been uh, <laughs> good and nasty. And while I gave a round of the strap to the hands of the rhetoricians, in another room, another teacher reacquainted the philosophers with the leathery bite of the toss. <laughs> On Sundays and bank holidays, the artier students took puppet theatres round the houses of the local folk. Sometimes they put on a wee comedy, in which case it was always a theologian who gave it lardy as the hero or heroine. As a reward, they generally got some fresh clothes, a sack of flour, half a roast goose or, or, or something along those lines. All the students, lay and clerical, were poorly provided for, but at the same time hungry as farmyard hogs, so that however much food was doled out, their grumbling bellies were never full, and the gifts given them by rich landowners never quite gift enough. Now, the biggest deal in the seminary year was the arrival of the holidays. These began in July. And then generally all the students scarpered home, the roads jam-packed with grammarians, rhetoricians, philosophers and theologians. Any poor soul who didn't have a home of his own, well, he would, he would bunk up with some other students' folks. The philosophers and theologians kept an eye out for tutors' posts, grabbing any chance to teach the children of rich farmers, get maybe a, well, a, a pair of new boots or a coat for their troubles. A whole gang of them would go off, tight-packed and rowdy like a regiment. They cooked their porridge together and camped out under the sky. Each with a bag with, well, maybe a shirt and a pair of socks, clean underwear in case of an accident. The divinity students were the canniest. In order to not wear out their boots too quick, they took them off, carrying them on a stick over their shoulders, especially when the road was thick with mud. Then they tucked up the trouser legs over their knees and sploshed away through pools and puddles. Whenever they spied a village just off the main road, they made a beeline and began to caterwaul their way through a sum. The big fella inside, usually some old Cossack who'd retired into farming, would clock an ear for a while then, <laughs> soil his warrior's face with, with sentimental tears and <laughs> say to his wife, oh, I haven't the faintest notion what these boys are singing, but it sounds right sweet and holy. Come on, dear, bring out some barracks and butter and whatever else we have, go and spare. <laughs> Tidbits grabbed, the boys trampled on. The farther they went, the fewer they were, as one lad after another neared the vicinity of the dear old family homestead, leaving the open road to them whose folks lived further away. So it happened that one time like this, there were only three students left out of the whole gang that had left Kiev, and the main road was dull and deserted, and so they, uh, yes, they, they took a wee side road, aiming to stock up on grub in whatever village they could find, for their bellies were rumbling fear hungry after all that marching. This wee group consisted of the divinity student Kalava, the philosopher Koma Brut, and the rhetorician Tiberius Gorobets. Carava, well, he was a tall young fella, broad shoulders and with a, a wee quirk of character, to wit, kleptomania.
If he saw it and he fancied it, he snatched it straight off. Top of this, he was a, well, a gloomy sort of fella, glad of a drink. And when he was drunk, he'd go and bury himself in the bushes somewhere so he, so he would have the devil of a time finding him. The philosopher Coma Brut, well, he was more upbeat. A fella liked to lie flat out, puffing his pipe and not asking much more from life. When he'd a good glug of wine in him, he'd scramble up a few coppers and hide a fiddler. And then show you the real he could spin, dancing the tropac. He never looked for trouble. But it always seemed to find him, and when it found him, well, well, uh, kicked behind, or a bloody nose, or a severely tossed pair of hands would be the result. But you never heard him complaining. That was life, after all. The rhetorician, Tiberius Gorobet, said, well, he was still a, well, a wee bit wet behind the ears. He, he hadn't yet earned the right to grow a moustache, drink brandy or smoke tobacco. He'd only a tiny, timid wee clump of hair, perched right at the very top of his head. While the forehead below boasted more than its share of bruises and bumps, suggesting this wee flyweight might have a keen future as a fighter. Calava and Homa often tugged his hair and sent them to sent him to do their dirty work as a sign of affection, you understand. Evening was already descending when they left the main road. The sun going down behind the hedgerows and the air was still smouldering with the heat of day. Calava and Homa strode along, smoking in silence while the young Tiberius swished the heads of the wayside thistles with his stick. The track wound on, through thick oak woods of oak and walnut, green hills showing against the sky, lush meadows below. They spotted cornfields, which meant they were near surely some village, but an hour had gone by, and no village or even a farmhouse was to be seen. The sky was getting darker and darker, only a blood-red gleam showing on the western horizon. The the hell with this, said Coma. I was sure we'd come across some kind of village. Calava paused, gave a gloomy look, chewing on his pipe, then marched on leaving it to the others to keep up. Oh, oh, hold on a moment, cried Coma, standing stock still. See that? Look here, here, the road itself. Or track, rather, or, or, or path, should I say. Well, well, look, look, look. It's neither a road, nor a track, nor a path now. Just, just, just nothing. If we just keep going, we're bound to find some kind of a somewhere, answered Coava, chewing the words round the pipe in his mouth. Meantime, it was suddenly a black, murk night indeed, thickening clouds above, letting through no so much as a a keek of moon or star. Our three lads had to pause and acknowledge they had lost their way altogether. Young Tiberius went stumbling and crawling and groping away, but but, but found only foxholes. All around them lay a great dark nothingness of steppe. 
the more they tried to flounder their way through it, the wilder and more trackless the land became. Hello? Um, hello? Anybody there? Hello? Homer tried to shout, but his voice was eaten up by that great Ukrainian emptiness. It's silence, the only answer. Until, that is, they began to catch. A faint growling sound. Like a wolf with the slavers. Oh, geez, a break, cried Coma. What are we going to do? Nothing we can do, said Kawava. None but camp the night out here in the open air. Oh, hold on, Coma replied. Ah, I've no no supper, nor dinner neither. My, 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 my belly, listen, it's, it's rumbling almost as loud as whatever great growing bear or wolf we heard there a moment ago. Come on, let's keep going. We're sure to find some kind of house, surely. A, a house where they're no too tight-fisted over their, their grub or their brandy. Brandy, snapped Kawava. Aye, well, maybe it's uh, no night for being eaten up by wolves. All right, all right, let's keep going. Tiberius, keep up! On they went, on and on through the dark, until at last they heard a barking of dogs, farm dogs as distinct from bloodthirsty wolves. Following that sound, they soon saw, yes, Yes, there it was. A light just ahead. A village! How a bloody will ya? cried Coma. Well, it, it wasn't quite a village. But as they stumbled on closer to the light, they beheld, well, two or three houses with lighted windows and a courtyard between them. Looking through the gaps in the gates, they saw several tradesmen's carts parked up in the yard. Home sweet home, cried Coma. Well, uh, good as. They knocked away at the creaky gate and cried out, Hello there, um, anybody home? Hello? The door of one of the houses creaked open. And out crept an old woman, snuggled up in a sheepskin. <coughs> Who's that there? Who's that there yonder? She cried, <coughs> coughing. Uh, three uh, friendly young fellows, mother. Oh, uh, a wee bit lost. And a wee bit hungry and, well, frankly, a wee bit scared of the wolves back there. Oh, come on, old girl. Where is uh, Doss down here for the night? Uh, pretty please, uh, we're scholars. Intellectuals. Big city sophisticates. The key of intelligentsia, so to speak. You'll be quite safe with us under your roof. <coughs> aye, <coughs> aye, said the old woman. I've heard all about you students. Bring your way in. Eat an old woman out of house and home. Anyhow, I've got, I got a full house already. See all them carts there? I haven't a hole in the corner for shoving you in. Oh, pity, mother, Clava cried. Oh, would you feed our Christian souls to the wolves back there? With them heathen Romans. Casting the faithful under the claws of lions. 
Uh, find us the, the teeniest wee uh, hidey hole pitched in Tiberius, and we'll be ever so grateful. And if we should uh, decimate your larder, well, well, we'll may our hands wither away to ugly stumps, and the lightning bolts of heaven burn us black. The old woman mused a moment. <coughs> All right. All right, she finally said. Maybe do you have a mouse hole here or there gone spare, but I'm, I'm putting you boys in separate rooms, mind. I know how rowdy it gets when boys bunk up together. Uh, separate rooms is fine, said Coma. Uh, he snores, and the other one's feet reek like yesterday's fish, so um, that's just perfect for me. The gates were creaked open, and they wandered on into the courtyard. Uh, well now, mother, said Coma, uh, if you only happen to have a wee uh, bannock or two gone spare, a uh, wee plate of stovies, we'd be, we'd be hell of a grateful. Uh, we haven't eaten since breakfast. Aye, uh, <laughs> there we go, replied the old woman. Out comes the begging bowl. Haven't you got no bannocks? Haven't you got no stovies? Not any fire for your rooms neither, so don't you go expecting that. Uh, we would uh, uh, be willing to pay, ventured Coma. In cash? Um, could we uh, uh, owe you? And I could owe you a slap, young man. Come on, come on, come on. What fine gentleman for the devil to drop off at my door. These strict limits to the old woman's hospitality depressed poor Coma. But then his nose perked up at a whiff of dried fish. He looked to, yes, to Clever's back pocket and saw a fish's tail hanging out of it. The philosopher, true to his kleptomaniac nature, had snatched a whole fish from one of the carts as they walked past. The fish pinched. He had already all but forgotten its presence in his pocket. Eyes already roving for something else to nick, which gave Coma alongside ample opportunity to, um, to snatch it for himself. The old girl settled Tiberius in a rickety shed, Kaleva in a, an empty cupboard, and Coma in a, a less-than-fragrant stall, usually occupied by sheep. As soon as Homer was alone, his appetite stripped the fish to the bone. With a pause halfway through to, to, to take a kick at a hog from the adjoining stall, which had stuck its nose through a crevice, rather fancying the idea of a fish supper itself. Fish finished. Homer lay down in the dirty stall, fed and happy as a prince. Then the low door creaked open and the old woman came creeping, creeping, creeping into the stall. Oh, uh, 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 hello there, mother. I was just, um, settling down for the night. Um, can I, uh, uh, help you? The old woman said nothing, but lurched forward 
swifter and swifter, arms outstretched, wrinkled fingers twitching as if to embrace him, goggling glittering eyes and deftly licked lips taking the the measure of him, as sure as he had taken the measure of that fish. A coma shrank back. But still the old woman kept coming. Eh, 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 excuse me, old girl, but I, I don't think this is quite um, eh, eh, appropriate. Her only response was for those claw-like mitts of hers to make a grab for him. He jumped up, tried to go past her, but she blocked the way with a slavering smile. A fresh reach. Uh, Homer, supposed he had little option but to try and shove her away, but found, found he couldn't, 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 couldn't lift his hands, nor shift his legs, nor babble a coherent word, even as the throbbing of his heart spoke his panic loud and clear. The old woman clutched his hands, shoved them crosswise upon his chest, then caught his head and shoved that downward. Then, with a spring like that of a cat, she jumped up onto his shoulders, smacked him in the side with a broom and cried, Giddy up! Giddy up! At which he found himself stumbling, floundering, running forward as if he was a racehorse and the old witch his jockey. Homer tried to catch at his knees with both hands to hold them back from running, but those bewitched legs were up for running and nothing was stopping them, soon galloping ahead like the shanks on a Caucasian horse. Swiftly, swiftly, the house was left behind, the darkened steps stretching before them, dark forest on one side, and our philosopher deciding in the firm conclusion that... God help me! The old bag's a witch! The half-moon shone above, casting a misty veil about the earth. Forest, meadows, hills, valleys, all were like open-eyed sleepers, or the staring dead. Not a breath of air stirring the land. The atmosphere was muggy and close. The shadows of trees and bushes fell stark upon the sloping steppe. strange, suffocatingly sweet impression seized the philosopher's heart. He looked down. The grass beneath his feet seemed lush and deep, and yet far away over it there, there swept a flood of glittering water, so that the grassy plain looked like the green bed of a transparent sea. He saw his own reflection cast upon it, his reflection and that of the old woman clinging to his back. The moon too reflected there, so brightly he began to wonder if it was the moon at all, if it wasn't some strange ghostly sun. He heard the deep resonance of bells ringing and glimpsed a mermaid rising from a wealth of sunken vegetation. She looked up at him singing a song which pierced his heart. She swelled towards the surface of the water, then vanished in a bright gurgle of laughter. Was he dreaming? Was he awake? Was he terrified or enraptured? 
sweat streamed from him as he chattered away all the prayers he could think of it. Uh, what was it you said for an, for, for, for an exorcism again? Suddenly the pace at which he was being galloped eased. The witch hanging in his back a little more lightly. An ordinary plain solid grass under his feet once again. Hallelujah, he thought, improvising his exorcisms in a louder voice. Gaining the confidence to suddenly pitch himself forward out from under the witch. No sooner had she clumped down with a curse than he was turning the tables, jumping on her back with a laugh. Kicking hard into moving on. Giddy up, old girl! Giddy up! The old woman began stumbling forward, gasping, gasping, gasping for breath. But however fitful and decrepit their movements, they were soon speeding forward so fast, poor Coma could hardly catch his breath. It became harder indeed to be entirely sure her, her lunching feet were still attached to the ground, the scenery about him flashing by in a blur. He reached down, grabbed a stick, used it to whip at the old girl hard as he could. She gave a brain cry like an angry beast. Though as they went on, the sound she made became gentler, gentler, gentle as silver bells tinkling. And he thought to himself, is she really an old woman? Ah, that's it, I'm done. No further, she gasped, sinking to the earth. Coma slumped beside her, looking her in the eye. Dawn was beginning to bleed across the sky, gleaming golden off the faraway domes of the grand churches in Kiev. And there, before him, lay, oh, not an old woman, but a bonny young woman with wire hair of ruddy gold. Drowsy, dazed she was, stretching her arms out towards him, looking teary towards the brightening sky. Coma shivered, shivered with sympathy and fear and something more intense still, twining the two together. He leapt to his feet, started running, heart leaping in his chest, mind racing every which way about these these feelings he was feeling. Where was he running? Not back towards the village, that was for sure. No, 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 no. It was the golden domes over Kiev he was sprinting for. Maybe when he got there, he'd be able to make sense of the whole wild night. And there, folks, we end part one of our Ukrainian folktale as immortalised by the great Nikolai Gogol. Young Homa, his adventures are just beginning. You thought this was weird and strange and downright peculiar. Wait till you hear what happens to young Homa next. But to hear that, you have to tune in to our next episode. It will be a long shortly. Thank you for listening.